Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Podcast. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday School class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. But before you listen further, you may want to go to teachings.jim314.com and download the student and or teacher handouts so you can follow along visually and take some notes. Thanks for listening, come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. There we go. All right. All right. So we'll start uh, today like we do each week with a gentle reminder uh, about our approach to Bible study time. Um, I think that, that you've probably gotten tired of this at this point, which from an educational perspective means it may start to be sinking in. Um, so that's when I typically learn things. So uh, my experience uh, in the church has been uh, ask the Holy Spirit for about 10 seconds for help, uh, stare at the text for a couple of minutes, go maybe talk to somebody, maybe not, and then spend a whole bunch of time in commentaries and opinions and sermons and the internet. Uh, and I just want to completely scrap that model and move to spend a couple of days asking the Holy Spirit for help, staring at the text for days, um, talking to those in the church, whether online or uh, in person, and then looking for some uh, confirmation and uh, maybe some structure type uh, perspective from different tools that we study. So uh, if we are doing this, congratulations, keep it up. Uh, please continue to do that for the rest of your natural life. Uh, if you're not doing that, you still have the rest of your natural life, so we can do that. All right, so today's class, we're going to read the text. Uh, we're in Romans 7 this morning, uh, and today we are actually... Um, not going to do steps three, four, and five. We're just going to do steps one and two because of the length of today's uh, passage, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But here's the ESV's outline of Romans. Uh, we've looked at, spent about three weeks introducing righteousness, six weeks talking about wrath and this judgment that's coming down on sin and the sinner. Uh, we spent a few weeks talking about saving righteousness. Now we're in this big section about righteous freedom. Uh, and today, I think you'll, if you, you probably saw a little bit of it last week, and today you're really going to see the freedom that we have that comes from righteousness. Freedom from something and freedom to something. Uh, and then we'll spend a few weeks on righteousness as it applies to the Jews, righteous living. Uh, Paul will kind of close and end with some really tactical things, and then we'll summarize righteousness at the end. So we're right smack dab in the middle of this section on righteous freedom, so let's go ahead and uh, jump in and get started with that. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, you want to look at Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, and then we'll go back and we'll talk about the second uh, half of chapter 7. <clears throat> Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Uh, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism to death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. So what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment's holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So it is now no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So that's Romans 5, 6, and 7. Uh, And if you've got your handout, it has a staple. I love handouts with staples. 
this means I did very little editing. Now, before we kind of jump into explaining this particular text and walking through what the words mean, uh, just a, a note about uh, how we approach dividing up pieces of Scripture for Sunday school lessons. Uh, I've, I've mentioned this several times, but just to make sure everybody's on the same page. When you go through and you see in your English copy of the Bible a new section header, so this section header is the law and sin in the ESV. That new section header for me triggers a new Sunday school lesson. Unless the text is really long, like it is today. Verses 7 through 25 is more than I can explain and walk through and apply and personalize in one week. So today is part one of this particular text. And next week, Tim Archer is going to come and do the observation and application and personalization piece. I'm going to do the, the Greek and the words and the uh, structure and those types of things. And Tim's going to finish up next week with the uh, second half of this particular lesson. So if you look at the text, so I want you to have your Bible open and I want you to have your hand out in front of you. So both of them out and open and ready to go. If you look at this text in your Bible, any literary or structural observations, anything jump out at you there? And you literally have my teacher notes in front of you today for the handout. So you've got it. Yes, Dave? He does. Yes. He asks these questions, right? Like, so what do we do about this? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and he's, he's like engaging them to think. Yes. Because I would say if they're just like our current society, they haven't been doing much of that. Yeah. We just get an autopilot because yeah. the easiest thing to do is what I'm doing and not to change and not to adjust and not to evaluate and not to internalize and not to look and not to examine. It's just, well, yeah, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Why? Because inertia is really powerful, right? It, we would agree with this, right? Inertia is really powerful force. Okay, good. Uh, I think it also illustrates the, uh, the beautiful complexity of Paul's argument in Romans because he'll make a point and then he'll say, so what are we going to do with that? He'll make a point and then what are we going to do with that? He'll make a point and he jolts the, the listener. And remember, when these folks first received these words, they didn't do it by reading them. They did it by hearing them. So imagine somebody standing up. We got a letter from Paul, and it's going to take you about 40 to 50 minutes, and I would assume it's equivalent in the Greek, to read through this letter from Paul. So we've gathered together. We're in a small group, and somebody's going to read for 45 or 50 minutes. Who's signing up for that, right? <laughs> Some of you want to revolt at three chapters, you know, 16 chapters of Romans. So Paul is helping the listener stay engaged by asking the listener questions. And I, I got to wonder if, if the person reading it um, got a response from the audience the first couple of times that they read this letter. Because he's asking them questions. And I, I want to go, because I'd be sitting there going, I, I want to answer the question. Can I answer the question? Right? Because it's a beautiful Q&A that Paul has with the listeners. All right, any other Structural observation. How many questions does he ask in this section? You know I'm going to ask how many, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the easy thing to count? Question, Question marks, yes. How many did you say? I said, I said 17, 15. 17, 17 15? <clears throat> and one of our, your Hebrew studies, you said 17. Oh. Oh. 
Seven sounds more spiritual, doesn't it? It's not right, but that's okay. It sounds spiritual. (laughs) People sell lots of books based on that concept. It's not right, but it sounds spiritual, so, yeah. Oh, did I meddle? I've already started to meddle. How many? You got three? (laughs) Anybody have a different number? Four? Yep. Microsoft Word told me four last night, so... Count question marks. Go, 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 go. <laughs> it depends on your translation. Uh, different translations combine some of the questions into uh, two questions or stretch them out into one question. Uh, but it could be three or four depending upon your English translation. All right, so any other structural observations? Now remember, how do we figure out what structural observations are? You literally stare at the text. So look at your Bible, stare at the text. If you don't have a Bible, you, there's one on the table. There's a a stapled copy of just Romans in the ESV, and then there's a book version as well. So grab one of those, stare at the text. Anything else jump out at you about the structure of this? He does, doesn't he? Yeah. He does a lot of that. Um, I've never read a theologian that I trusted that said Paul was bipolar. But he sure does bounce back and forth an awful lot, right? And again, remember, it's a really long letter. We need engagement. We need back and forth to, to help us in our frailty, in our flesh, that he talks about a little here, uh, stay engaged fully as we should. All right, so let's take a look at what do the words mean. And this is literally your handout, so we're just going to run through. <clears throat> So what shall we say then? This is in the future. What shall we say? And remember, the, just a reminder, the indicative is a statement of fact from the perspective of the writer. It, it may or may not be true, but the writer thinks it's true. The writer thinks this is, I'm just making a statement of fact about something in the future. So what shall we say then? That the law, the nomos, is sin? So let's, let's ask this, answer this question real quick. Is the law that God himself gave to Moses sin? No. Thank you. Right. I mean, and this is Paul's response is by no means or your different translations have some version of what? No. Like, you know, this is as close as you get for, to the. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. Yes, I am. Homer Simpson, though. Right. I mean, just absolutely, completely, totally not the right answer to this question. And Paul does this regularly throughout Romans. He does it in Romans 3, 4, 3, 6, 3, 31, 6, 2, 6, 15. 7-7, He asks these questions with an obviously spectacularly no answer. And that's good. Because it's really helpful to know good theology. And it's also really helpful to know the answers to bad theology. Because somebody might come along one day and say, well, the law is sinful. No, 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 no. It's not. Like, Paul said it's not. It's specifically not sinful. Okay, good. This is helpful for us in our understanding of what we do with that whole Old Testament. Right? So what, what do we do with that? Well, look at verse 7 again. What shall we say then? The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for, remember that word dia? Through, it goes through the diameter, it goes through the center. If, it, if we had not gone through the law, I would not have known or been aware of sin. Now look at the next sentence. For I would not have known. You see how the first known is uh, genosko, and the second known is ido. Those are different Greek words. The first is a more intimate knowledge of something. 
than the second is. Now, for I would not have known, Edo, see that word pluperfect? Give anybody a nickel if you know what the pluperfect is. I have a nickel in my pocket. I will give you a nickel if you know what the pluperfect is. Nobody? Does anybody have your basics of Greek verbs sheet? It's on there. It really is. It's completed action in the past that's no longer uh, continuing on. So, for I would not have known, would not have been aware of, what it is to covet or to lust after or desire, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, does this make sense? We, we talked about this very briefly last week, that if you've ever uh, been around kids or seen kids or have kids, that you know the second that you make a rule about something, what does that child want to do? Break that rule. So let me get real personal. The second we get told a rule, what do we right now at our current age want to do? You know, break that rule. Yeah. When was the last time somebody at your work said, you can't do that? Well, I bet I can. <laughs> you might not know that I'm going to do it, but I can do it. Absolutely, I can do that. That's just, that's our sin nature coming out. And to me, this is one of the most simple ways to share the gospel. You have a sin nature. Because as soon as I make a law, you want to break it. That desire to break, that's part of that sin nature. That's the brokenness of humanity. So if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't know what it was to covet. But sin. Now, Paul's going to use a literary technique here. And I probably should have talked about this in the structural observations. But he's going to use a literary technique here called uh, personification. Where he's taking something that's not technically alive. Like, sin is not a living, breathing thing. Is everybody with me here? But Paul's going to treat it like it's a person or a living thing so that we can better relate to it and experience it. So, but sin, seizing or obtaining an opportunity, an occasion, through the commandment, going straight through the commandment. So sin is watching us interact with the law and it sees that, ooh, I want to break that law. So sin jumps in and seizes an opportunity. All right? Seizes an opportunity through the commandment, produced or performed or worked out in me all kinds of covetousness. Not just covetousness, but all kinds. Because what does the, the Ten Commandments say? It says, thou shalt not covet. Is it, does it get specific? It does, yes. It gets very specific. It's... I think the only one that just, you know, Moses starts listing, well, you could covet this, and you can covet this, and you can covet this, and you can covet this. And one of them was um, my, my neighbor's donkey or something like that. It, it's, it, it's all kinds of things. You're going, I don't, I don't know that I've ever wanted my neighbor's donkey, but okay. <laughs> you know, I wanted my neighbor's car, which might be the modern application of that, right? Okay, I can relate with that. So it's not, just, it's not just a very narrow seizing and desire to do something. It is a very broad application of um, these kinds of covetousness. All right, so next sentence. For apart, for separately from the law, sin lies what? Dead. Huh. So let me ask the same question I asked a couple weeks ago. So was there sin? Remember, okay, so we've got, we got our timeline of the universal history, right? So there's God existing, and then he created Adam and Eve, and then they sinned, right? 
Yes, excellent, good. It's like, we're playing t-ball at this point, folks. And then there's a gap before the law comes, and the gap has a comma in it in the number of years. Was there sin in that period? Yes, there was a whole lot of sin. There was actually so much sin in the first comma that God hit the reset button because he wiped everybody off the face of the earth except Noah and the seven other people. Right? So, so we know there was sin. So come back and look at the verse. The sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, producing us all kinds of covenants. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So how do I reconcile sin lies dead apart from the law with the period of time before the law was given? How do you reconcile those two? The concept that sin lies dead apart from the law, and the law didn't show up until Moses. There you go. Absolutely. Did God give Adam any directions? Yes. Could I be so bold as to say that that perhaps was a law Adam should not break? Think I can go there? Were there a lot of laws? As far as we know, there was just the one. But we also can assume that after Adam broke that, God gave Adam a lot of instructions. Because in that period from Adam to Moses, there were people who righteously worshipped God and did it well before the law showed up. And if you could righteously do it well, you could unrighteously do it poorly. So these concepts are not contradictory to the, all of human history that we're familiar with in the Old Testament. All right, so when the commandment came, sin, I'm sorry, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. It recovered life. This is actually a word that's used several times for uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection. Uh, he revived. He came back to life again. And I what? And I die. This is that same word, lies a dying. So I am lying dead because this came alive. So verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved or saw to be death to me. Is that sinful? Does that make the law sin? I've already asked this question. Does that make the law sin? No, absolutely not. By no means. Thank you, Skip. I appreciate you paying attention. By no means. For sin, seizing, here's this word again, it's seizing an opportunity. Again, the same word. Through the commandment, what did it do this time? It seized me earlier, now it's going to do what? Deceived me. To seduce, to wholly beguile. It deceived me. And through it, what? Killed me. Yeah. I'm dead. I'm dead. When I only interact with the law and not the Messiah, I'm dead because sin kills me. This makes sense? Which is why all those folks in the Old Testament that saw the law as nothing but a list of rules and regulation and no relationship, dead. There's no life in that. See, the law is actually a way to have a relationship with God. Because when Jesus came, what does Jesus do? He fulfills it. And what does he focus on? He focuses on relationship. Because this was intended to give us structure and process and boundary around relationship. And what do we do? We turned it into a checklist. 
which is what we do really, really well. We turn things into checklists. Right? So if that's not a macro history concern challenge of looking at what God gives us and turning it into a checklist, I don't know what is, but that's as good as I can get it. So that's verse 11. Verse 12. So the law is what? Holy. So it's not just not sin. It's holy, which is good. Because God doesn't make unholy commandments. Isn't that beautiful? This is really good for us. Because if, if he was an erratic God that just spouted off things right and left, like the Greeks' gods or the Romans' gods, if you read about any of these in mythology, you never know. They might wake up one day and just have a bad day, and then you're going to have a bad day. right? Because there's this new law and this new regulation, this new rule comes down, and it may not be good for you. But the law is holy. And the commandment is what? Holy. Yeah, it's consecrated. It's set apart. And what else? Righteous. And we've seen this word dozens of times in Romans so far. And it's what? Wait, there's more. It's good. It's beneficial to us. So how in the world is it beneficial? All right, let's keep, up. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Did that which is beneficial or good then bring death to me? By no means. By no means. I was, I'm just waiting on you. <laughs> Absolutely. By no means. That is not it. The law did not bring the death. It was what? Sin, right. So this is a challenge to Jim. We, especially as teachers, need to be very careful how we talk about the law. Because the law does not cause death. The law gives us an opportunity to either place faith in ourselves or place faith in one who has fulfilled the law. And when we place faith in ourselves, sin springs up, seizes, deceives, beguiles, and kills. I can either choose that path, or I can choose the path of Jesus Christ. And one is much, much better than the other. So, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing or accomplishing or working death in me. Think about this. So he's personified sin here, where sin is fashioning, it is creating, it is working death. You see, like the fingers of sin working death inside of me. That's scary. It was like something you like, skip past on the movie channel that you're like, nope, that's too scary of a movie. I don't want to look at that, right? Ugh. Producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be what? Sin, yes. What does the law do? The law makes very plain, this is right, this is not right. This is good and righteous and holy. This is unholy and sinful. The law exposes sin for what sin really is. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. You ever met anybody that just liked to sin? Right? We, we do this. way this works. Verse 14, for we know, this is Edo, that the law is spiritual. Now when you hear this word spiritual, um, just the vast majority of the time in the New Testament when the word spiritual is used, it is meant as a contrast to that which is fleshly and earthly and can be touched. Right? This is the idea. It is not a, oh wow, this is, ooh, mmm, 
No, it just means not fleshy, which is what he does here in just a second. We know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. I'm fleshy. Sold under sin. Now, why would we say sold under sin? How does Paul introduce himself back at the beginning of Romans? Anybody remember? Slave, yes. He's a bond servant. He's a doulos. And what do you do with slaves? You buy them and sell them. They're property. Right? And sin treats us as property. And Jesus treats us as family. And this is radically different. Do you want to be property or do you want to be family? Family. (laughs) I pick family. So, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I am disposed as merchandise into slavery under sin. Verse 15, for I do not understand. I do not, genosco, I do not have a good working uh, experiential knowledge of my own actions. Which is kind of crazy thought, right? Because if anybody's going to testify about my life, I would think it would be me because I was there. But... I don't have a good working understanding, experiential knowledge of my own actions. So how confident should we be in our flesh if we don't even have a good experiential working knowledge of our own actions? Probably not very confident. So he goes on. For I do not do, I do not uh, perform repeatedly what I want to do, what I desire, what I intend to do. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. But I do the very thing I detest or hate. Verse 16. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 17, so now, so he's, he's coming to one of these so what statements again. Just now, it is no longer I who do, but what that dwells in me? Sin that, but I thought I was a child of God. Why do we keep talking about sin? I thought I was a child of God. Nature's still there, right? There's going to come a day where Christ is going to deal with that too. But right now, that nature is still there. So now I, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells. or The word here is dwells, or occupies a house within me. It resides, it cohabits with me. For I know that nothing good, nothing beneficial resides in me. I have thought about this text for a few weeks now, knowing that this was coming. And uh, a good prayer to pray in the morning is, uh, Father, I know that nothing good lies in me. Please help. I rely on you. And that's probably the fastest route to get where we ought to go. (laughs) I thought it was good timing. That was fantastic. (laughs) I wasn't thinking about a road. I was thinking about a house, but I can mix my metaphors. It's all right. That nothing good dwells in me. That is what? That is in my where? In my flesh. Yes. So this flesh has got problems. 
And some of you are going, I know my flesh has problems. I woke up this morning and looked in the mirror. <laughs> it's got problems. For I have the desire, the intent, the, I want to delight in to do what is right. And to me, this is one of the things that separates a believer from an unbeliever is the desire to actually do what is right. But not the what? Not the ability to carry it out. So I want to do that, but I can't, I can't just pull it off. For I do not do the good I want, but the what? The evil I do not want. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, is what I keep on repeatedly doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, and have we established that we do this? Yes. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that occupies that house within me. So there's a reason for this. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want or desire or intend to do right, something beautiful, something good, something virtuous, evil lies close. So it it tricked me, it seized me, it deceived me, it beguiled me, and it's hanging around really close. See how he's personified sin to be this living thing? Solomon does this in Proverbs just all the time with different things, personification of things. So sin lies really close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. So not only is the law not sin, the law is holy, the law is good, the law is beneficial, and the law is something to delight in. This is good. I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see, I look back, I regard in my members, my limbs, another law, waging war, attacking, destroying the law of my mind, and making me captive, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched or miserable man that I am. Who will deliver? Who will rescue me? The idea here is through the idea of a current. You are swept up in a river and you are about to be drowned. Who will rescue me? Who, who will rescue me? Who? Yes! Do you, do you see the crescendo of the structure of this passage? We're, we're, we're being deceived and beguiled and swept and, and, and hustled even and deceived and, and seized and it lies close and then we have a Savior who comes and rescues us. Why? Because we need rescuing. <laughs> it's beautiful. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's nothing else that the rescue comes through but Jesus Christ. So then I serve, I myself serve, I do laeo, that I, I am a slave to the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So, one question real quick. What are some repeated words? I'm looking for two specifically. Sin, yes, and law. If you want to understand the relationship between the law and the sin, this is a great text to study. So we're going to pause there because next week Tim Archer is going to come back. And so what do we do with all that? Because there's a whole bunch of stuff there. So no challenge here, Tim, but I'm looking forward to it. All right, so that's the lesson for today. The weekly update is on your table. Uh, so pray as a group over those ongoing prayer requests. If you've got any new prayer requests just for this week that you want to pray for, we've got a section for that. If you've got any prayer requests we want to continue to pray for on a weekly basis, do that as well. Uh, sign your name at the bottom.
Make sure everybody that was at your table at some portion of today's lesson's name is there so we can get good attendance. And uh, pray as a table. And then when you have finished praying as a table, you are dismissed. We've got about five minutes and we're going to turn the lights out. So thanks, guys. Thank <laughs> you.